The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you are about to listen to discusses the following works. Elf, Planet of the Apes, King Kong, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Godzilla, The House on Haunted Hill, The Evil Dead, Get Out, Underdog, Milton the Monster, Gilligan's Island, Silent Spring, The Babysitter's Club, Goosebumps, The Human Centipede, The Fly, both versions, Joker, Us, The Last House on the Left, It Follows, The Exorcist, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, Spider-Man, Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Star Trek, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, Young Frankenstein, I Walked with a Zombie, The Brain That Wouldn't Die, The Man with Two Brains, El Camino, Room 104, and American Horror Story 1984. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. So this is the first of two episodes, um, the last two of season four, where we focus on um, our favorite holiday, right? Halloween. Halloween. The greatest holiday in the whole wide world, um, as Elf might say. But, yeah. but, but not about Halloween. No, no, he, he says <laughs> it about Christmas. I, I just like the expression. <laughs> yeah. So what we thought we'd do is talk about some things that we particularly like about classic horror in this episode mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and we didn't really sort of define exactly in advance what we have in mind um so we started thinking about this but let's let's think you know before the 1970s or into the 1970s yeah yeah and then in the second episode um we'll talk about some of the things that we like and not just aesthetically but philosophically mm-hmm. um for more recent horror so, what do we like about um, classic horror? So, the, the main topic that we landed on for this week is we're going to talk about mad scientists, yeah, which is yeah. a, a real fun um, element of some classic horror films. Uh, but maybe we could talk about some of the runners-up really quickly before we jump into that. So, uh, I, I, gorillas. Yeah, tons of gorillas in the, the old days. Um, yeah, that were just cast as absolutely horrifying Mm -hmm. um the gorilla's gone loose and attacking everyone as if they have this like murderous bloodlust for human blood right in the in the really scary versions um they can talk and are sentient right think planet of the apes the original movie but you know going all the way back to king kong um Mm -hmm. and you know maybe even before that right They're, they're big they're strong um, they can bend steel bars. They don't communicate um, other than by grunting and with their facial expressions. Um, but yet they seem as smart as humans and they're one step ahead. Sometimes. Yeah. And, and, other, and other examples they're portrayed as just complete brutes. You know, not like they're thinking carefully, but as if they're just, they're just maniacal killers or, 
you know, um, have a bloodlust, really. Yeah. Uh, and they're always, I mean, in the early horror films, they're always just portrayed by some guy in a gorilla suit, <laughs> which which adds to the kitsch. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a you know classic Halloween costume was was made. Okay, so what are what are some of the other ones? Right, we've got the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh-huh. Um, so different kinds of creatures, definitely mutants of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, in some cases, sea monsters. Um, Things like Godzilla. What, what's Godzilla? Just gigantic, um, lizardy dinosaur guy. Dinosaur <laughs> I think he's a things. lizard. Yeah, yeah. Big, big, big reptiles. I'm right? not big. actually sure that I've seen any version of Godzilla. Oh wow! Yeah. Well, we almost saw one together, and, and, and then, then Henry uh, chickened out. Henry, he was very little at the time, and he thought, "Oh, this is going to be bad." So, mm-hmm. so we had to leave. But yeah, I've seen I've seen plenty of Godzillas. Um, yeah, uh, aliens. Aliens. Like crazy. Yeah. Um, Skeletons that come to life and, and fight are sort of a staple of the... Yeah, the, the House on Haunted Hill has some elements of this where it would just really cheesy special effects where the skeleton is moving toward you, mm-hmm. obviously suspended on strings. Yeah, and you, and you get all the stuff that you, you still get in the, the modern ones, right? The vampires and zombies and those kinds of things. But um, we're more focused on the things that, that seem to have sort of gone extinct for the most part. I mean, or are still maybe re-emerging, good... but not quite in the same form with the same feel. Right. There's, a, there's a vibe. There's a, there's a you know, pre-1970s qualia about certain sorts of sci-fi slash horror movies. That, uh... Right. And, and every few years they make another Godzilla or another King Kong. But nobody goes into those um, expecting to be terrified. Yeah. Right? But... Um, mm-hmm. With the, the other ones, um, they were, you know, and, and like the claymation monsters, right, that you, you had in the earlier ones. Those were pretty terrifying. And now when you get those kinds of things, it's only for the kitsch value. Like uh, the evil dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Okay, so what do you reckon? On to mad scientists, right? That's the... the, the in my opinion, I think sort of the, the the greatest trope of the classic horror film. I actually think that the the mad scientist as a character in movies had its heyday in like the 1960s and before. There are so many fun movies. I remember you bought me for a gift one year a collection of 50 horror movie classics, and they were all like black and white. You mm-hmm. know, some of them ranging from between like the 1940s and the early 1970s, and they're so creative. They're, in many ways, they're much more creative than the horror movies we see now. Although we've seen a resurgence of, like in the form of Get Out and, and things like that, of a more creative horror movie. Right, but they tended to not be formulaic. Although they, all those things later became formulas. Yeah. Right, yeah. And what, like, out of the 50 movies in the set, 10 mad scientists Seriously, probably. yeah. yeah maybe, and maybe often more. they involved also uh, gorillas and mutants. Yeah. All is part of the same storyline. Lots of gorillas, lots of the creature from the Black Lagoons, yeah. kind of a mutant. And yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned the heyday of the mad scientist. That's certainly true of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Right, so I saw this meme recently. Yeah, I had a picture of quicksand, and it said something like, you know, I was led to be, or led to believe this was going to be a, a bigger part of my future, right? Because, um, <laughs> you know, there were lots of shows back then that people got sure. stuck in quicksand. Um, yeah, mad scientists when I was a kid, everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the underdog cartoon, right? The, the arts rival, the nemesis of underdog is a mad scientist, Simon Bar Sinister, 
right? And there's the you know, Milton the monster, and he's created by a mad scientist. And I've talked about this episode of Gilligan's Island before, right? The mad scientist gets a hold of the castaways and you know transports their brains into one another's bodies um, in a laboratory that looks kind of like Frankenstein's laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, tons of mad scientists. You mentioned apes. Um, I was also quite afraid of gorillas when I yeah, was, yeah, was sure. little because, you know, I, did, I thought there was going to be one on every corner eventually. But um, You know, I wonder in your case if, because they are less prevalent now than they were in that, at that time. And I wonder if it was because, I mean, you li- you were, you grew up, your childhood was in a super interesting time. I mean, so, so too is mine and so too is uh, Henry's and people who are growing up now, but you were really seeing the birth of the technology age, right? right? I mean, Beginning the, like, the moon landing and, and, right. and all that kind of stuff. That, and before that, people just going into orbit and, and things, um, you know, it was all very yeah. novel. So yeah, it was thought that, that science, science could do anything and some percentage of scientists were bound to be evil, yeah. right? And they, they were nearly omnipotent. Well, I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know the year that Silent Spring was published in, but that was in the 1960s, I believe. Yeah, I think you 68, know. but it, don't quote me on that, dear listeners. Um, <laughs> Where yeah. it's like, okay, well, if we don't want any bugs, we, we're just, now we're the type of creatures who can just eliminate whole groups of species selectively if we want to, and let's get rid of bugs so that we don't mm-hmm. get, you know, I mean, th- that kind of thing. Um all sorts of people from all sorts of domains, be it art or um, other scientists or philosophers or whatever, are going to have something to say, some commentary to make on our manipulation of the planet in that way. Yeah. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, right? So in my childhood, scientists knew everything. Um, and now you huh. could get 99 or maybe 100 out of 100 to agree on a, an issue. Um and half the people will doubt it. Oh, that's that's the real <laughs> horror of this episode, folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I will. So I don't think that mad scientists were quite the thing in movies in, when I was growing up as they were in yours, but when you were growing up. But um, I do remember reading. I, I loved two, two book genres, not just genres, series that I loved growing up, The Babysitter's Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and other '80s kids will be like, "Yeah," and um, and the Goosebumps series because I've I've loved horror from a from an early age. Um, mm-hmm. So I remember that uh, the mad scientist trope f- was the driver of a lot of Goosebumps books. So um, I remember there was this the one that stands out in my mind the most was this one called "Stay Out of the Basement." Mm-hmm. And it was about this kid who lived in this house and his dad was doing experiments on plants and uh, trying to understand the differences between plants and animals and how, or no, sorry, uh, between humans and plants. So plants that, and That's how we ended up with um, vegan meat, right? <laughs> yeah. Except for the dad kind of wanted to like harness the power of photosynthesis or something, if I remember correctly. and. Mm-hmm create a human plant hybrid thing right yeah now um, now we do the same thing but the result is a western bacon cheeseburger that <laughs> that's fully vegan or like a human animal chimera or all these weird things we have now which are very real and and mm-hmm. right spider goats that we talked about yeah. a couple of weeks ago yeah uh so i remember there were other there's like one called say cheese and die where a mad scientist had created a camera that could see into the future um, then there was one called Egg Monsters from Mars about <laughs> mad scientists. 
I'm, you know, I was feeling pretty smug a minute ago with it. Yeah, I grew up in the 60s and we went to the moon and stuff. I, I missed out on goosebumps. Egg so. monsters, yeah. I know, yeah, you know, it's six of one, baker's dozen of the others, the kids say. So it'd be interesting, I think, to have a conversation. <laughs> interesting to have a conversation about uh, what it is that makes mad scientist movies scary and perhaps they never are truly i mean although like the human centipede i think is technically a mad scientist movie and it may be more disturbing than scary but yeah, mad scientist creepy. movies land str- firmly in the horror genre mm-hmm. you know a lot of them some some you might put in the sci-fi genre but most of them if you look them up they'll be sci-fi slash horror and scary things happen uh, i'm wondering just before you continue so okay so when these movies were coming out i'm thinking like the fly and stuff right mm-hmm. Um, they were pretty scary. People people found mm-hmm. that stuff terrifying, but we've been sort of desensitized to lots of it. Um, and I just wondered if, if the time isn't ripe for a really good... Well, like I say, I think Get Out is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. That scientist movie, ultimately, you don't find that out until the end, so spoiler. But Right. Um, and I really loved it, but not scary. Not, oh, I thought it was kind of scary. Yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, it, you know, it depends on what you mean by scary. I watch so many horror films that honestly, I'm desensitized. Uh, very rarely am I actually scared. Yeah. Um, right. so, so what I think is but we like can sit back disturbing and say, oh, or that was troubling. Scary. Even if we didn't feel scared, we could imagine. Yeah, like in last week's episode, like you struggled to even find the Joker disturbing, but I think. Be- yeah. That might come about as a result of being desensitized because a lot of people who don't watch those kinds of movies would definitely find that disturbing. Yeah, and I found um, and I found that the, the the backdrop disturbing. So I don't want to leave folks with the wrong impression mm-hmm. that mental illness is treated that way in our society is terribly sure. disturbing. But I mean, but, unnerving, disturbing. Yeah. Like you're a little creeped out to watch yeah, it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I I sometimes can see that in films, even if I don't feel it. I can see why somebody else might, and realize that like, oh man, I've just seen every horror movie ever made. Practically. Right, and, and since we mentioned Get Out, um, Us also counts, I think, as a kind of a mad science sure. yeah. thing, and and that had a nice creepy factor. But I'm I'm just wondering if they can produce a you know, oh my gosh, I can't look at the screen for a minute, terrifying movie. With a mad scientist, or has that just been debunked? I bet they could do it. What I think is that movies are increasingly unwilling, like filmmakers are increasingly unwilling to push the envelope in terms of what's genuinely disturbing and scary. I'm thinking about some of the movies that I found the most disturbing and scary over time, like Last House on the Left was really disturbing. Right. The Um, the original The original. Yeah. Yeah. In the 70s. Um, And I think, yeah, maybe the more recent one was disturbing too. I can't remember. (laughs) But I remember just like viscerally how Mm -hmm. disturbing the original was. And um, one that was recent that I found very disturbing was It Follows. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. That that was was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good time. Um, the Exorcist, really disturbing. And yeah, I was I mean, just thinking if you had a possessed mad scientist <laughs> like going up against a priest or something, I mean, you know, maybe. But just about, the, think about the envelopes that, that all those movies we listed are willing to push. That, like, any more movies don't do things that are genuinely surprising and genuinely take you out of your comfort zone. And I think that's what's required for, like, a really genuinely startling movie. Yeah, right. Um, there, there was one movie that kind of got to you recently. I can't remember the title of it, but... Um, there was somebody in a morgue and you, you 
you find yourself creeped out. The whole thing, the whole thing takes place at night. I think in a I morning. know. It's like the the exorcism or the possession of somebody. Yeah, 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 yeah. The possession of somebody or someone. Someone with two names that's a female name. It's yeah. pretty bad. <laughs> I think she was a Molly ginger. Hartley, Emily Rose. I don't know. Who, yeah, yeah. Who that's getting closer, right. Yeah, and I remember we were watching it, and I'm looking at you, and you're like kind of creeped out. I get unsettled. I do get a little bit unsettled by possession movies, even though I fully do not believe in possession in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Uh, but so, so maybe we can talk about... Uh, so I, I think that... Um, all genres of horror films um, belong in the horror category in part. There's there's some philosophical explanation for why they disturb us or for why they belong in the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, like about what are the dangers? What are the warnings? I think a lot of horror films are carry with them some sort of warning or or if there isn't something to be... I mean, they, they kind of have to because if, if they're isn't anything to warn about or to find dangerous then what's scary mm-hmm. right so right i mean even if it's just something as clumsy as a slasher film it's mm-hmm. a statement about how people can get and yeah yeah so i think here's my take and you maybe you can share with me your thoughts on this uh, by the way i'm just going to disprove you by making a horror film while, while someone just trips and <laughs> it's, it's not going to be philosophically interesting at all uh, then it would just be a horror film by stipulation uh, yeah and you'd, and you'd be there going oh my god i might trip someday <laughs> Maybe skin your elbow. All right. All right, go on. Sorry, I didn't. So my take on why mad scientist movies belong in the horror genre is this. Uh, there's some deeper philosophical question about the, the relationship between human beings and nature. So uh, there's this relationship between human beings that allows human beings to like harness and distort nature. Mm-hmm. And that, that can, you might think that that both can have very serious consequences, um, as we can see in the real world outside yeah, of the yeah. horror genre, and um, that it can have perhaps really serious consequences for the development of virtuous character, which is a philosophical issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, there are these, there's philosophical questions related to hubris. Right. It's, um, it's the Spider-Man thing, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. The mad scientist has really great power. And, and what, what should human beings be doing in the, in, with regard to the external world? Um, you know, mad scientists frequently are doing what a lot of people would refer to as playing God. Are we thinking too highly of ourselves? Even if you don't believe there is such a thing as playing God, you might think that there is such a thing, of, uh, such a thing as... Um, thinking too highly of your own epistemic position Mm -hmm. right so okay you've been able to master this certain set of skills you know what you're 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 competent to do certain sorts of things but you may be woefully uneducated about the consequences of your actions Mm -hmm. i mean this this is you perhaps what's going on in part with respect to climate issues and so on yeah it was a lesson we learned as a society over and over and over again. Oh, we'll dam up this river and then we'll have all the water we want. And it's like, oh, wow, we just led to an increase in this invasive species in this ecosystem. And mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so I was, uh, right now I'm teaching Aldo Leopold Sand County Almanac in my environmental ethics class. And one thing that was relevant to this episode is his thoughts about changing our paradigms the way that we understand the human relation to nature. So he talks about switching the paradigm from 
land the slave and servant to land the collective organism from man the conqueror to man the biotic citizen and most importantly from science the sharpener of his sword to science the searchlight on his universe oh yeah that's a nice quote yeah so this this understanding that like okay even if science is a really good thing which i think a lot of us are inclined to think that it is um, should we be like, yay, here's science, just another tool for humans to use to exploit resources? Mm-hmm. Or should we think of it as, oh, here's science, a way for us to understand our place in the universe. Mm-hmm. A way to, or, or not to be so anthropocentric, oh, here's science, a way for us to understand the universe. The universe, right, yeah. right. Um, or something to be skeptical, skeptical of. Um, for example, if you don't want to get your kids vaccinated, right? Evil scientists are they alerting you. They provide the basis of the skepticism. Is that... no, no, no. I'm I'm just saying different models for for you know science. Science could be something that you know allows us to try to control the world. It allows us something to shine a light on the world, or something to conveniently ignore when it runs afoul of one's other beliefs. But this isn't a suggestion. <laughs> this yeah, yeah. is descriptive rather than normative. Yeah, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I, I, I was thinking of a few of these mad scientists. Uh, it's a few ma- examples of mad scientists in pop culture, and I'll tell you. Uh, so I started, of course, thinking about Frankenstein as the paradigm case. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Frankenstein is sort of the ball that got this all rolling uh, as a character. Um, but w- when I was doing a little research for this episode, I came across all sorts of mad scientists films and stories and so on that I'm like, oh, look how this is untapped. Like I, I was talking a second ago about, oh, we've seen all the horror movies, but you and I haven't seen all of the movies in the mad scientist genre by a far stretch. Right. It seems like we've seen all the movies that have come out in the last 30 years and just scratching the surface with the ones before, mm-hmm. even though I'd venture to say we've seen considerably more of, of the classic horror films than most folks that we know. Yeah. Yeah, there's tons of stuff out there. But that's... in searching for this, I'm a little disappointed in my um, in my Vincent Price uh, viewership because I love Vincent Price and uh, there's a lot of fun mad scientist stuff yeah. with him that He's... I didn't realize existed and hadn't seen. Perpetually a mad scientist. <laughs> yeah, tons of stuff. I yes. found a, a fun short you know, that mm-hmm. I haven't watched yet. Oh, yeah, it's been surprised. Was he played? Mad scientist. That's actually his name. Right? <laughs> he doesn't yeah. have a mad scientist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another. So before I before I start talking about Frankenstein, another kind of philosophical idea that I think helps to motivate this, or maybe underlying some of our thoughts about mad scientists, has to do with this idea of human beings as essentially rational animals. Where you get this all the way going back to Aristotle. What is the function of man? The function of man is to reason, mm-hmm. um, to live life in accordance with reason. Life in accordance with reason, yeah. That, it's our characteristic activity. And we've had philosophers over the course of... That's been a theme that's really been picked up throughout the history of philosophy, that human beings are these rational animals, sometimes men at the exclusion of women in some in some philosophical systems, which is unfortunate. Yeah, we're talking about this a lot in my existentialism class, and right? right. the existentialists had this great take that that's right. completely the wrong view, and it's actually detrimental for a lot of right. reasons. Right, yeah. I, I find, you know, so rationality is important, but it might not be the... If there is any essential feature, which I'm not sure there is an essential feature of a human being, uh, the essential feature that unites living things might be the capacity to suffer. Like there are mm-hmm. other ways of understanding essence. But anyway, when this 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 essentialism, this idea that 
Um, there is such a thing as an essence of a human being and its rationality. That got picked up and distorted for all sorts of purposes. Um, some of the mad scientist purposes. Mm -hmm. that, oh, I have this rational capacity. I may as well use it. Oh, mm -hmm. kind of right, thing. right, right. <laughs> so um, that, there's, that there are no bounds or limits for that capacity. Mm -hmm. Right. There's a responsibility you take on it. There's another variation that if you've got it, flaunt it, right? Mm -hmm. um, why did we... Why did the guy climb the mountain? You know, because he could, right? Mm -hmm. Why did the mad scientist do this or that? Because he could, right? It's yeah. Has the ability to do it. Why not? <laughs> so, um, so anyway, to Frankenstein. Um, to Frankenstein. To Frankenstein. Here, here. I, I uh, so I, I was thinking about um, mad scientist char characters as trying to fix or sat fix some of the some what we might view as crucial limitations on human existence and the things that humans can do um, to kind of, this is, okay, so you're, you're teaching a course on existentialism right now and you've talked about absurdity, mm -hmm. right? So there are these, Camus' account of absurdity is that it's, uh, the, the absurdity of uh, the human condition is that it's a confrontation between the desires of an individual's and an indifferent universe, right? Right, right. So there are all these desires that humans beings ha human beings have that we can't satisfy, um, that the universe isn't the kind of thing that cares about our interests, but then mad scientists come in and they're mm -hmm. going to make the human condition less absurd in a way. Right, right. So, you know, for part of it for Camus, this absence of religion where the playing God thing ties in perfectly, yeah. right? You've, you've got a surrogate <laughs> yeah. there. You, yeah, yeah. You know, we don't right. have God, but we've got someone we've, who can play God on this yeah. narrative. And, He's made himself a God. Yeah. In a Nietzschean sense. <laughs> so, um, like... Uh, so, for example, I'm thinking one of the main motivations um, for Victor Frankenstein seems to be um, this desire to understand the functionings of life and death and to be able to cheat death. Mm -hmm. So he's experienced the death of his mother and is traumatized by this and um, thinks, oh, I'm, I'm going to understand all of the natural sciences perfectly so that I can, um, I can cheat death. And there's this question of whether that would really be a good thing or if that is hubris right which is right. A, that's all essentially philosophical question you know that drives that storyline um yeah so straight out of greek tragedy right the, the sin of pride precedes the fall right so you get this kind of hubris and it all all goes bad and then this question there there is this other question about what what useful what which things are not just useful for us to know, but whether um, whether all knowledge is valuable. Some philosophers think that knowledge has intrinsic value. <laughs> um, Suckers. <laughs> you might also think that there are some things that it's best not to know. I'm not advocating that position, but it's definitely a philosophical question to ask. Are there things that'd just be better not to know? Yeah, there's certainly things that aren't worth knowing, right? like the blades number of blades of grass, grass on a lawn, yeah, or how many grains of sand on a beach. Right, right, yeah. I mean, you you could spend a lot of time. Um, I mean, I think we all sort of do this to some extent. Um, you know, you'll you'll get fixated on something and spend an inordinate amount of time figuring it out, um, and then when you have your answer, it's like, huh, right? Mm -hmm. So I might remember that you know. Um, I had a um, you know pocket watch that's broken that I don't care about, 
I wonder what I did with that, you know, and three quarters of a day later, oh, here it is. It's oh, in the gee. bottom of the closet in a box. <laughs> now I know where that is. I wasn't going to use it. It's... Yeah. You are in particular prone to that one. You hate to not know where things are. Yeah. Even yeah. if they're kind of ins- inconsequential things. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I wonder where my keys are. We'll, we'll be back in, in 30 minutes. <laughs> um, so... I think Frankenstein also pushes on these questions of how much, to what degree we should be try, trying to harness and control the natural world. Um, so the, the story starts out, th- this part of it is very rarely told. When you see movies of it, it's very rarely told this way. But um, the, the, the book starts out with um, um, Frankenstein being picked up by a boat on a voyage. And... Um, as, as Frankenstein gets to know the captain of the ship, he realizes that the captain of the ship, the captain of the ship, I think, is trying to find a passage, a, nor- a northern passage, mm-hmm. like all these kind of stories from that age. We just go right into telling the terror instead. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and he's, he's kind of driven by this um, lust for knowledge. And Frankenstein's like, oh... You know, let me let me show you the folly of that path and starts to tell him his story. Uh-huh. Um, and so it is like right from the outset, it's the story about it's I mean, I think unquestionably there is value in um, appreciating and loving knowledge and maybe pursuing knowledge for its own sake. But can that go too far? And you see something similar in the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, so again, you see this this um, desire to cheat death. Um, but also you get more in this one. You get a little bit of this in Frankenstein, too. Well, a healthy, a healthy dose, but even more in, in, in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde trying to use science to understand the nature of good and evil. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So what Doesn't other... Doesn't go well. Yeah. Then we have The Fly from 1958. Where the what the scientist is trying to you've got a, a a husband and wife the the husband is a mad scientist mm-hmm. and he's trying to create this machine that transports matter the integrator disintegrator or is it or the, the disintegrator integrator first yeah. they disintegrate then they then integrate. they integrate yeah. yeah which everybody wishes was a thing except for of course that's a whole personal identity question because if you disintegrate matter and then right it's put the it Star back Trek together, problem right. <laughs> yeah although if you manage to keep the same matter yeah right, um, it's like <laughs> yeah, take it apart. Move it, you know, put it in some kind of jar. And yeah. Move it and put Going it back to together. China in December, I would love to be able to just transport there instead of be on a 18-hour flight or whatever it is. <laughs> oh, but all those great movies, and then there's going to be the wonderful meal. And, and the great sleeping the, experience. Yeah, the, the leg room. That's, <laughs> that's my favorite. But so, of course, what happens um, in the fly... This Things is like what we were talking wrong. about earlier, right? Doesn't account for every variable. It's the hubris mm-hmm. of the scientist. Yeah, they think. One little thing. Okay, I got this figured out. You didn't factor in what would happen if a fly. And then the, the guy, the husband becomes the fly. He's mm-hmm. And the fly becomes the husband too, right? They're, they're meshed together. Yeah. Or which yeah. one's which? Maybe that's an independent philosophical question. But at the end, you've got this... What seemingly the husband stuck in the the um, spider web, and you can hear him help me. Right, right, <laughs> and, and presumably that's him, right? That's the old mad scientist model of you know whatever the consciousness goes into is yeah. is the thing. And then, and then you've got and and the other one is kind of portrayed a little bit as a monster, although the the wife is you know doesn't yet know that he's a fly and she's. Um, 
he's writing her notes, right? Mm-hmm. But but progressively, he, the handwriting's getting worse and worse, and he's even though his consciousness, we later find out, is clearly in the little or fly for whatever yeah, reason, how he's it, retaining how some of it. Yeah, well, that that's you being anthropocentric again, right? Um, that's very good writing. It's just fly writing, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, it starts out as human writing and slowly. De- degenerates into fly writing. Right. I mean, if, if they'd had one or two sentences about muscle memory or something, yeah. they could have... Yeah. Maybe they did. I don't know that I'm remembering it. They, they didn't. <laughs> I'm positive. But yeah, you could tell a story where it's just the, the muscles are habituated to certain things. and um, you'd, Yeah, you'd have like to, playing the piano. <laughs> right. And you'd have to then believe that they were habituated to writing that particular message somehow because yeah. the consciousness is still in the little guy. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> Okay, so what about Dr. Frank Enferder from Rocky Horror Picture Show? Is, is there anything philosophical to say about this guy? Yeah, boy. Um, but, you know, the, the, the whole movie, or the play and the movie, are, are philosophical in the sense um, that you know, they constitute a kind of argument for hedonism, right? Not million hedonism, but more mm-hmm. traditional okay. hedonism. You know, just don't dream it, be it, um, pursue pleasure at all costs, right? that sort of thing. Give yourself over... The absolute pleasure is a line. Okay, in one okay. of the, the songs, but that's not something that you get from the mad scientist, right? It's it's the right. whole culture of them that come from um, Transylvania, the planet, um, not not the place, right? The um, the servants, riffraff, and Miranda, and the the unconventional conventionalists that come with them and do the time warp. Yeah, they're they're just a bunch of hedonists. Hmm. Um, but I wonder then if it kind of... Hmm. And it ties in just quickly to, um, you know, what what he's hoping to do. So, right, Dr. Frankenstein in Frankenstein is worried about immortality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Show mm. is, is just mm. looking for a toy. I mean, he's creating this, right. this Adonis that, um, you know, he'll have this wonderful man that's his plaything. Um, but then he turns on him, right? Uh, so this is like an aesthetic, ch- choosing to live an aesthetic life. Yeah, yeah. Aesthetic the, life is defined. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> Maybe more narrowly than... The, the worst examples of, since we talked about Camus, of her absurd heroes that, that yeah, there are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's uh, that, that's a fun interpretation, actually. I mean, it doesn't, sounds like straightforwardly accurate, not just an interpretation. All right, here's where I talk directly to the listeners. Do not infer from what I just said that um, when I was a young man, I went to the Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight 50 or 70 times <laughs> in a row without missing any weeks. It just seems that way, but, but that, that never happened. Okay, so what about, is it Friedrich Frankenstein? Friedrich, yeah, Frankenstein. Yeah, from Young Frankenstein. And his assistant, Igor. <laughs> What it, what's there to say about you're you're more of a young Frankenstein? Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I, I like um, most things by Mel Brooks. Um, I mean, I think it's supposed to you know by stipulation be the same set of motivations that you get in the original Frankenstein wanting to. Although he's the the, the grandson, so he he wants to fulfill his grandfather's um, legacy and and see if the experiments can be carried out and all that, and then it. it same exact thing. It goes it goes wrong, um, but it, it doesn't go wrong um, because he can't control things, right? It goes wrong because his assistant Igor, um, you know, is supposed to put Hans Delbruck's brain into the monster, but he breaks it. So he picks one that 
you know, in the tank it says abnormal and he thinks, oh, it's the brain of somebody named Abby Normal. Mm -hmm. And he puts it. So, but still, it's, it's you know, you, you can't control for all the variables and, and in the end something goes wrong. Um, but this ends up with a happy ending, right? Um, Frankenstein gets a little part of, uh, or the monster gets a little part of Frankenstein's brain. And um, so he can join society and not be a monster. And um, the Frankenstein gets a little something from from the monster as well. Um, our show's rated G, so I won't go into the details, but, you know, the, the thing was giant and the, the wife was happy about it. And, oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, that we can say about the, you know, so we're talking about mad scientists themselves as characters, but um, because in most mad scientists, most mad scientists, it seem to be, seem to be um, mad scientists that are doing experiments with respect to biological organisms. Mm -hmm. um, and so you get a lot of interesting cases for reflection in bioethics. And in fact, a lot of um, philosophical thought experiments when it comes to personal identity or personhood or any of these types of things are these kinds of um, cases that may easy be easily be generated by mad scientist horror movies. Mm -hmm. So you can, I mean, so today we're talking just about the mad scientists themselves, but the outputs of their experiments are definitely uh, the subjects of philosophical reflection themselves. Right, right, right. And, and I'm now just sort of flashing on certain um, horror things and horror-related things, right? So now there's, you don't get mad scientist stories, but you get stories um, about children that were... The results of eugenics experiments and stuff. So, the, mm -hmm. like you're saying, the byproduct of, yeah. Um, yeah. of that. I was also just thinking of something else, too. So, we were talking about you know, these films from the late 50s and 60s, and this is when science is getting really good, right? Mm -hmm. um, we have what back then they were calling you know, miracle drugs, and the space program was taking off, and you can get in airplanes and go. Um, and just before that, there was a, a healthy respect for science, but the world didn't have quite as good a sense of what scientists were capable of. It was less realistic. And I was just thinking there were all these these sort of earlier films where the mad scientists could hypnotize people, right? And that oh, was yeah. that was sort of a trope <laughs> for a long time too. So we start with this, you know, the kind of I walked with a zombie type stuff. Well, if someone knows enough about science, they'll know how the human brain works. They can um, hypnotize people, <laughs> control their minds. They can get an army of people to do their will. Then we learn a little more. It's like, oh, no, science doing stuff with molecules. Great. What are molecules good for? We'll transport people from place yeah. to place or we'll, we'll reanimate, right? And then you get the, the remake of The Fly, um, you know, where Jeff Goldblum, one famous line, just, you know, he's talking to um, a woman that he's brought back. Um, and he says, you know, I don't really understand how all this works. I'm just a systems manager. I know that if you buy this bit of hardware, it'll do this, and you buy this bit of hardware, and you put them all together, and now you've got this thing that can mm -hmm. can transport. And that's a sort of a much more realistic view of yeah. the scientist. And it parallels, that the, the, I think, the modern philosopher, right? Yeah, so, I was going to say that too. Um, yeah. There's this idea that, you know, philosophers or systems philosophers back in the day, you know, where if you were a philosopher like Aristotle or Kant or someone like that, you would explain everything, right? Mm -hmm. And now you, you focus, right? You, you find people that only know about spoilers or people that, <laughs> that only know about, you know, personal identity and stuff. And, and you know, and everyone has their, 
their favorite side interest, but you're not, the, the conception of the modern philosopher is not this sort of Renaissance person of philosophy that, that knows all there is to know about philosophy. And that's the way the mad scientist is now, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, again, go back to Gilligan's Island. More specialized. Think of the professor, right? Mm-hmm. He's not a mad scientist, but he was a scientist. And, oh, he could do chemistry, he could do physics, he could do biology. He, you know, he was a meteorologist because he was a scientist. He must have known everything. Yeah. I was also thinking that this tracks... Um... Our understanding, I mean, it's, it's the, the, the move happened far later, but I'm thinking about somebody like Descartes, who one of his goals, because, so I read a biography of Descartes where um, the author was discussing like Descartes being involved in some um, nonsense science that we would now think of as like, you know, magic and mm-hmm. stuff like earlier on, like alchemy type stuff. Right. And then like, wait, no, this is nonsense. How do we distinguish real science from bad science? Mm-hmm. And it seems like even, I mean, for people who aren't well-trained in science or who haven't read a lot about scientists and their method and so forth, it might, the, the line between science and magic might be kind of blurry. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we see that reflected in film even hundreds of years later. <laughs> right. So, so I think I understand, though, right? So a real scientist is someone that will do an experiment that ends up putting a rocket on the moon or, you know, a satellite going around Neptune. Um, a non-real scientist works on vaccines or, <laughs> or the environment. I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm taking polls here. <laughs> Not an endorsement. Not an endorsement. I wanted to discuss one movie in particular that came from that 50 greatest horror film set that you mm-hmm. got me. That really stands out in my mind as a great example of a kitschy mad scientist movie. It was called The Brain That Wouldn't Die mm-hmm. from 1962. So you've got this mad scientist who... Um, uh, Love the title, by yeah, the way. Yeah, oh, it's great. It's, I mean, it has, it has a lot of the features of a great old horror film so um the scientist has this fiance and he's out on a journey with her they get into a bad car accident and sorry for the spoilers here but the girlfriend is decapitated people have had a chance to see yes, this one. 1962 folks so uh so he preserves her head and she's like fully functioning in there it's like a brain in a vat type situation only mm-hmm. it's her whole head and so and then he goes out looking <laughs> He goes out looking for a new body in like a typical 60s style. So he's like the burlesque shows. He's going to the modeling agency, making (laughs) sure he gets this swanky new body for his girlfriend. Uh, In the meantime, so she's ticked off at him. And let me just interrupt. If if anyone's seen The Man with Two Brains, it's clearly derivative Derivative of this, right? He finds, he's got this brain. He really likes it. He's just finding a body for it. Yeah. Starts looking at prostitutes. Right? <laughs> Let's bring home the hookers. And... I, but this doesn't happen in The Man with Two Brains. So he, she, well, in the meantime, she's um, she's getting ticked off that she's being preserved in this state. And so she starts to communicate telepathically with a mutant. Mm-hmm. And then the mutant kills the Igor figure. That's great. All brains and bats can communicate <laughs> telepathically. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, ultimately. Um, so I think that's that's really fun. Just another one of these, like, oh, I can use my understanding of causal mechanism to 
preserve life, prolong life, bring back life. Mm-hmm. Um, the human relationship, I mean, it is. It goes back again to this idea that one of the things that makes our existence absurd is the fact that we all must die someday. And so the, 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 the mad scientist is the absurd hero that mm-hmm. comes in to stop this. Yeah. And- Although it wouldn't be an absurd hero because an absurd hero accepts their own plight. Right, right. <laughs> um, and it's also not, the absurd hero is the hero for himself. Right. right, and the mad scientist is the hero. Going to become the, the god figure, like you yeah, mentioned. Yeah, so well, he's the absurd savior, right? Yeah. So to speak, or savior from absurdity. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Hey, Rates, what are we liking this week? Well, we watched El Camino. Yeah. Okay. And that was pretty fun. Definitely liking El Camino. I was a little nervous about it at first. I thought um, the first little bits were kind of slow, and I thought, oh, yeah, the, the pacing, I, I don't mind it, but it, it's not going to be great. Um, but as it, it went along, it picked up steam and it ended up being very great. And um, in the, the very end, I, I found it extremely satisfying. It's a nice what happened to Jesse Pinkman story where I, I, like, I like where they went with it. I would recommend, if you haven't watched it yet, that you maybe um, remind yourself what what happened in the last season of Breaking Bad. Yeah, um, there was a nice previously, but it wasn't enough, right? Yeah, I, I, it wasn't enough for me. I, I had to kind of throughout. We were pausing, and I was going online and being like, I don't, I don't know if this is new information or the continuation of some storyline. So I know, like, some of our friends have watched the whole series and then watched El Camino, which I, I would recommend. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a big time commitment. So at least like read plot summaries and remind yourself of what was going on. Cause there are a couple of key plot points with Jesse that I didn't remember that are pivotal. Right. If you don't have time to do that, we'll just um, give you the, the real quick pre So Jesse was one of the characters in Breaking Bad <laughs> and he was Walt White's little, little meth buddy. Um, <laughs> I think people probably remember those. Walt White's this guy, um, that he was also in Breaking Bad, um, and he's the one that, that actually broke bad. Uh, Jesse kind of broke good, in a, in a way. Um, anyway, there's there's some other people, nice cameos, great to see um, Skinny Pete and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Jesse Plemons, I think that's his name, um, who's in lots of things, um, had kind of a small part in the last season of um, Breaking Bad, has a, a very nice role in this one um robert forster um was in it um and he was just in the last little bits of um breaking bad as well and sadly passed away i think um the day it came out the day it came out yeah um so yeah that's sad nice to see him one more time though just the same um okay what else we're we're like in room 104 just Mm -hmm. consistently good um not a lot to say about it um every episode's different um but they, they don't fail to, to disappoint. They don't fail to disappoint. They, they, they're good. <laughs> um, that sentence yeah, good. didn't fail to disappoint. Um, yeah, okay. So now I'd like to do a segment called, what am I not liking this week? <laughs> I'm really, I don't, I don't know if you're with me on this. Um, I'm terribly, terribly, terribly disappointed and this season of American Horror Story. I think I'm not as disappointed as you are. I'll say that I liked this season better than I liked last season. Yeah, I didn't. I was kind of disappointed in that one. That was the first one where I thought, uh-huh. uh, yeah, not loving it. But mm-hmm. but I was enjoying that quite a bit. It just I wasn't 
I wasn't feeling the same way that I had in earlier seasons. Um, so this one's starting to get better, right? That the first several episodes um, all seem sort of like the denouement of, you know, one of those 1980s horror films, which is what they're going for. But it was hours of people just running around being chased See, by the See, to bad me, guys. that's nowhere near the most significant failing. To me, it's that they are trying, so, they're doing so much camp. And I don't mean, you know, sleepaway summer camp. It's so campy that it's, and I think they're actually starting to transition away from this just a little bit. But the first few episodes, I was like, oh my gosh. Because American Horror Story is great at with, with the horror movie tropes, combining various horror movie tropes. And at various points, um, and, and like we've said on previous episodes, I'm not frequently actually scared by horror movies, but there have been a few moments in in past episodes of American Horror Story that I felt found kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's never scary. It's kind of like, it's it's definitely more, and I think feel like last season was sort of like this too. It's definitely more in the range of being amusing, like funny even, larger than life, campy, that it's almost got more of a um, Scream Queens vibe. And we know what happened to Scream Queens after two seasons. Yeah, yeah. I actually really liked uh, the first season of Scream After one, Queens. instantly the second season was bad. Right? No, I just mean it got canceled. Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, so, um, I, yeah. I, it's taking a turn for the better, I think, recently. But Se- seemingly, right? Yeah. It, it has enough episodes left to redeem itself. Well, there's no Sarah Paulson, I was just gonna Evan say, Peters. Here's what I think it's missing. Yeah. Just finished the list, right? And Sarah Paulson, Evan Peters, Jessica Lange. Jessica Lange was Kathy a Kathy Bates. And then, no, uh, you know, Gaga was only, had a short stint, but she she was good. Angela Bassett, yeah. um, uh, Lily Ray, right? Any of those people. The kind of, yeah. I mean, are, it has uh, Emma Roberts, but Scream Queens had Emma Roberts. I like Emma Roberts, but she, the, 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 and maybe if they had her as a different kind of character, but she just plays... You know, she plays the ingenue at the camp and she played bubbly ditzy girl on some of the other seasons. And mm-hmm. so maybe if they gave her something that required more chops, it would be different. But yeah, I, I thought um, her best performance was either in Coven or Freak Show. And this doesn't rise. To me, it's probably Freak Show. I, I mean, I think Coven. Yeah, I don't know. I like Coven, but I think Coven, Coven encourages a kind of campiness that I think that they need to mm-hmm. avoid. And and but every time they bring the coven characters back, it's like okay, camp time for camp. Yeah, yeah, and and, <laughs> so, and each iteration of them is a little more cartoony than the yeah. the previous ones. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage. That's I think they're all one word. To find out about upcoming episodes, if you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.